Hello, everyone. This is Matthew Yaling. In the previous episodes of MEC Connect, Patty and I have been speaking about the life of a catastrophic claim and how MEC makes a difference. Today, Patty and I are joined by Jeff Jones. We'll be discussing claim resolution of a catastrophic claim. Thanks for joining us, Patty and Jeff. Thank you, Matt. This is Patty Reinecke, and I'm the Director of Client Consults and TPA Relationships here at Midwest Employers Casualty. And we're very happy to have along today Jeff Jones. He is one of our senior claims counsel, and he has been at Midwest for about 12 years now. So thank you, Jeff, for taking the time to talk about the legal side of the catastrophic claims handling. We've gone over the multiple moving parts of claims handling. So let's project now that we've gotten the outcome we want and everyone has worked together to achieve the stabilization of these catastrophic claims. Can these claims be settled at any time? And if so, when would be a good opportunity to settle the catastrophic claim? The answer to that, of course, is yes, depending on jurisdictional restraints, right? So there will be certain jurisdictions where you can't settle the medical. That's, of course, a consideration when you look at whether or not you want to attempt settlement on any particular issue or claim. When that individual reaches MMI or is relatively stable is a good time to try to resolve it. There may be along the way different minor disputes after you get that person close to maximum medical improvement, which may provide an opportunity to resolve the case as well. So in terms of when to settle, you're looking for getting that individual back to a stable position. Sometimes it's called MMI. Sometimes it's just stable in the context of that particular injury. Then you're also looking for if there are certain disputes that go above and beyond what you might ordinarily provide that individual would be an opportune time to to look and at least consider whether resolution is economical or not. So you've talked about when you can settle, and uh, you mentioned that several jurisdictions don't allow you to settle, but in a jurisdiction that can settle a claim, can you give an example where settlement may not be the ultimate outcome that you want to consider? Absolutely. With these catastrophic claims, one of the major issues is the life impact that the injury has on an individual. So those definitely instances where the individual's life expectancy is significantly compromised. There will be instances where that compromise of life expectancy isn't appropriately analyzed or considered by opposing counsel or the claimant themselves, and it really skews the value in the numbers. Um, when you look at those life impairment issues, I think that is important consideration for the valuation of the claim relative to settlement. Other issues are where we're going to have dynamics with Medicare set-asides, where Medicare might overvalue certain components of the medical moving forward. You know, one of the things that we've done a terrific job here at Midwest of doing is analyzing the totality of costs moving forward. One of the things that comes to my mind is right now we're seeing Medicare in the Medicare set-aside, from my opinion, overvaluing prosthetics. And so you get into this situation where you're projecting a prosthetic every certain number of years. CMS is, is not valuing it the same. They're valuing it, those replacements much more frequently. As a, co- as a consequence of that, the costs go significantly up, which is affecting the overall value of the settlement. So in those particular instances, you may be comfortable recognizing that particular challenge and may not want to consider settling. One of the other instances where, you know, you may not want to consider settling or may wait to settle in conjunction with something is when you have a subrogation action or you have 
in a subrogation action, a mediation pending. A good opportunity to settle these catastrophic cases is in conjunction with that. You may be able to leverage some of the dollars that you might recover in a subrogation interest to offset the amount that you're paying out. So when you have potential significant injuries, there's frequently attorneys looking for third-party recovery opportunities. To the extent that you can monitor those and piggyback opportunities within the context of that claim can present opportunities to settle it as well. Really consider the impact of the third-party recovery, the jurisdictional challenges, and what you anticipate you know, the return is, and how you might be able to discount your offers. Yes, those are some great examples of things that we can look at when dealing with these very complicated claims and all the legal issues that go along with them. I know sometimes in our industry, when we're working with multiple TPAs across the country, we see the bifurcated settlements or where we're settling the medical and indemnity at different times. So um, I know sometimes that works for certain areas, jurisdictions, as you mentioned, but it also leaves an exposure open when only a portion of the claim is settled on these sometimes. So can you kind of talk about your philosophy on settlement overall? And of course, when it comes to those catastrophic handling of claims, and then kind of give some detail of when you see settling just a portion of a claim beneficial. Does it work well in the long-term claims handling process? And also when it comes to the catastrophic types of claims, just your experience with both of those? Yeah, my perf- personal preference is to resolve collectively the entire claim. I'm not a tremendous fan of indemnity-only settlements. I like to have that indemnity there in case I need to utilize that dollar as leverage to resolve the entirety of the claim. The other component of indemnity is we know what that value is, right? It's a defined number with certain subject and COLAs and states, with certain uh, supplemental benefits in other states, but we know that number, right? Even if we project that out over a full life expectancy, we're confident in the consistency of that number. What isn't as consistent, what is much more dynamic potentially, is that medical care. And it can be ever-changing. Even if we get a catastrophic case to the point of MMI, there are going to be challenges along the way. There are going to be unexpected developments along the way. I like having the indemnity still present to leverage those dollars if those come up. The second component of that question is, are there instances where you might settle certain issues or dispute? And the answer to that is definitely. Sometimes we get in situations where because of excessive demands or just different valuations of the dollars associated with the value of a case, we may have a dispute where we want to settle a home modification issue or you know, a certain extra prosthetic issue or a wheelchair issue or a home health care issue to settle those separate and distinct on a stip basis in many of the states. You know, not the entirety of the medical, but a component of the medical. I've seen instances where people will like to settle non-covered components. I'm not a huge fan of just that generic label because things might be covered on one day for Medicare purposes and non-covered on another. So that bucket has the opportunity to switch. My personal preference is that if you have an issue of concern, and you want to resolve just that particular dispute, that's an opportunity where you carve out certain items. There may arise out of a catastrophic injury, consequential injuries. Certain states might have instances where you can settle out that consequential injury, be free of that medical, return the focus back to 
the primary injury. I think that's another example of where you might consider resolution of one or two items um, that present themselves. From my perspective, when you're attempting resolution, leverage is always important, right? We have a large pot of money when we go into the settlement or a mediation table, right? That is significant to the injured worker, sometimes significant to the injured worker's attorneys, right? So the dollars that we have provide leverage. The disputes also help provide leverage, right? So that impacts the dollars that are necessary. And so to me, when you have those disputes, you have opportunities to resolve the entirety of the claim. But if you can't, in those instances, resolve the entirety of the claim, certainly you're looking at carving out different exceptions that you can resolve. Maintain a positive relationship with the employee. Listen, you want their well-being as much as anybody. You don't want to offend each other just because you have differences in the valuation of a claim. So when you can settle those one or two items at a time, I think you leave a little bit of goodwill on the table and you look for your next opportunity to resolve when it develops. That's a lot of great information. Obviously, you know, we're talking about catastrophic claims and they're very complicated. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of different interested parties. We talked briefly about uh, Medicare, Medicaid, MSAs. Each one of those subjects could probably be its own podcast and its own you know, discussions. There's there's whole weekend seminars on these things or whole week-long seminars on each of these topics. But maybe can you highlight who is often involved in the resolution of a catastrophic claim? Absolutely. So first and foremost, the claimant, I think, is a critical piece of this, right? They have expectations for care. They have expectations of the limitations in their life and how they want to live with those limitations, right? I personally feel it's important to engage them in the process to understand what their desires are and their needs are, and then design packages around those desires and needs, right? Because we've tried our best to take care of these individuals and return them to as whole as we can possibly make them, given the context of those injuries. I think the continued collaboration through the settlement and negotiation process is still important. So the claimant, first and foremost, one of the most important individuals at the table. Obviously, if they're represented, their counsel is significant. Uh, you hope that their desire is to make sure that that claimant is taken care of. Now, certainly there's different ways for claimant's attorneys to evaluate how that person is taken care of. We're talking about Medicare set-aside trust. There's a number of claimants who will involve life care planning institutions. Typically, those are seen in more civil litigation. They will filter their way into catastrophic cases. If you have a Medicare set-aside company or vendor that is properly evaluating both the covered Medicare cost and the non-covered Medicare cost, I focus on that as opposed to the life care plan, right? So because of those impacts, it is important to have your Medicare vendor or someone knowledgeable with the Medicare set-aside process at the settlement conversation table, or at least available as a resource. Fortunately, many of us here at Midwest are MSA certified so that we have that dynamic when we go into the mediation table or go to the mediation table. Another role is the defense attorney, right? The defense attorneys are frequently helpful on a jurisdictional level to discuss what may or may not be covered under that state-specific law. While that's important, there might be other instances where you want to maintain that goodwill. You want to make sure that the claim is taken care of properly. So there might be instances where you recognize that, but to help facilitate the deal, you might compromise on providing 
um, a modified vehicle, right, which may or may not be necessary in the context of the case. So defense counsel, important. I think that a mediator or um, a judge is sometimes very important to have at the table or at least to discuss the issues, right? One of the challenges with our current legal environment is the inundation of advertising on television. It's important that individuals have representation. I'm not criticizing that advertising. It's an important dynamic in the legal profession, but sometimes that has the ability to improperly influence what a claimant's expectations are. So one of the things that you need to do to make sure that you counter that is just be upright and forthcoming with it. A mediator is a neutral third party that allows both parties to speak open and honest. You can have discussions private with a mediator, but the mediator can provide realistic evaluations to both sides, right? So if a claimant has misevaluated what responsibilities are covered by workers' compensation, they may have been told that pain and suffering is not covered by their attorney, but the mediator is a non-interested party who they may be more receptive to listening to. I may go into a mediation and say, I am absolutely not paying for any more home modifications. I paid for home modification before. It's not my fault they lost the home. Well, a mediator might come in and politely say, Jeff, I think you're wrong on this issue. Here's why I think you're wrong on this issue. They may influence me, right? There was once where I was wrong, right? It influenced me, and that mediator was very helpful in that one time that I was wrong in walking me back to where I should have been. So the mediator and a judge can be very impactful in this. Sometimes an individual isn't ready to resolve the case, and we need either more treatment or a different treatment strategy. And so there have been instances where I've involved medical providers, at least on the phone in the conversation of these dynamic cases, to provide more care before they really reach the point of settlement. These settlements are very complicated, more complicated, of course, than your traditional workers' compensation claim. And sometimes it takes two or three attempts to resolve them. And so having kind of that foundation and and focusing on trust and focusing on getting the individual better are, are important components of that. So those aren't individuals in the room, but that trust component is important in the ultimate resolution of the claim. Certainly. Yeah. Thanks for that answer. Yeah, those are great, great um, examples of, you know, remembering what's important to those injured employees because they are the ones that suffered that life-altering injury and the rest of their life will be impacted. And our goal has been the entire time to give them that best possible quality of life into the future. Can you talk a little bit more about, you two touched on Medicare and the trust and the other parts too. And so I just wanted to know if you could provide some clarification when you say Medicare, and this is a workers' compensation issue, you know, sometimes those lines are a little bit blurred. But can you talk about, you had talked about the covered and non-covered, and just the basics of what that Medicare set-aside trust is and how that affects the settlement for any kind of injured employee? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So the Medicare is a secondary payer, right? So as the employer or the carrier you are the primary responsible for medical care associated with that injury. Typically in the catastrophic cases, those individuals qualify for social security disability and as a consequence of that development are quickly entitled to Medicare benefits. There are certainly instances where Medicare benefits are not necessary. Those could be instances where the individual has not paid into the social security disability system. There could be workers who are not United States citizens. 
So there are a few instances where that may not be necessary. But the, the point of the Medicare set-aside is to individuals who are have a reasonable expectation to Medicare benefits or are Medicare beneficiaries, we don't want Medicare paying for the medical care associated with the workers' compensation injury. As a consequence of that, we've developed the Medicare set-aside system. CMS will review Medicare set-asides to evaluate whether or not they're reasonable. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about prosthetics. Medicare, on a fundamental level, will cover certain medical items and certain medical care. You'll see prescriptions covered in one instance, but there might be certain prescriptions that are not covered. There might be certain home health care that's covered and certain home health care that's not covered. So when I talk about covered and not covered, we talk about the things that Medicare will cover as part of their benefit package, right? We talk about non-covered, we're talking about the things that they do not cover as part of that care package. So when we go into the settlement, we want we use that to anticipate what an individual will need into the future. Medicare will have certain timelines and requirements for certain items. They may expect monthly physician visits. They may anticipate quarterly visits, depending on the nature of the injury. They will review the medication history, and they'll look at how frequently and how much of that medication that individual is getting. They won't necessarily look at the non-covered, and so that presents, in many instances, a significant component of the negotiation is what those non-covered medical costs are. It's important to consider those. It's important to consider what those truly are versus what the vendors say they will be versus what a life care plan might be. Certainly, I enjoy evaluating life care proposals, right? I like carving those out and saying, is Amazon Prime really necessary for this individual for the next 30 years? Is Amazon Prime going to be around? Are we promoting this podcast on Amazon Prime? I love Amazon Prime if we are. Uh, If not, right, it's the non-covered things that really are the foundation for the negotiations because everybody has a pretty good sense of what those indemnity values are. Everybody can look at the Medicare set-aside. CMS will approve a number. That's a defined number. So the the variable in the negotiation process frequently is those non-covered costs. How much home health care? How many home modifications? How often does the grass, grass need mowed? Those type of things are what drive, in many instances of these catastrophic cases, the negotiation hot points and hot button issues. Great. It's a wonderful example, clarification. Like we said earlier, we could probably talk about that subject all day, and I'm sure we'll have future episodes discussing what an MSA is and the different components. So MEC connects to make a difference, Jeff. Can you give us an example of how you've made a difference today? No, I can't. <laughs> I, Thanks I for your honesty. It's, it's early in the morning. I've only had one cup of coffee. Um, so I'm going to make a difference. I guarantee it. I just haven't made it yet. No, I mean, one of the things we're looking at this morning is um, significant injuries to multiple officers who were wounded in the line of duty. An officer shooting, terrible event. But, you know, we're looking at how we can as Midwest, get those individuals back to full health. You know, they've had a great result so far. We're looking at making sure that their care maintains in a consistent course and getting them back to employment in the community. So that's what I've been working on this morning. It's not as exciting because I'm looking at medical records, so I'm not directly influencing somebody. But hopefully we're providing a positive impact based on the catastrophic unit. I know that our catastrophic nurse case manager, Phil Ramadetta, is looking at that case. We've been going back and forth. 
amazing resources here at Midwest. So working with some of the nurses, working with our chief medical officer, Dr. Bronco, they bring tremendous insights to these catastrophic cases. I just get to have a little piece on the background, watching the subrogation issues, helping when the case does get to a resolution point. So they do the real work. I'm helping kind of behind the scenes with some of the subtle issues and looking for the right opportunity for these instances to occur. So I haven't made a difference yet. I'm doing my best to make a difference. It's a great point because it does take so many people to make sure that these injured employees get the best possible medical care and all the care they need to return that to that highest possible level of function in the end. Right. And that's what we want. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're tremendously saddened by their loss and their loss of use and their loss of function. We want the best for these individuals. We want the best for them, of course, in the confines of the value of the case as we project it. But I like working with these injured workers to get them to where they want to be, right? Sometimes we're going to have differences of opinions. Sometimes we're not going to be able to resolve those cases. But it's really impactful when you can make a difference and a positive difference in their lives. I mean, we've walked out of mediation um, conferences where injured workers have hugged me, their husbands have hugged me, and they've thanked me. And that's a really glowing endorsement, right? Yes, they're receiving a big lump sum check. But more impactful to me is the fact that we've had a positive influence on their lives. And that's the real joy that I take from this. So that's that's the difference that I hopefully make. Great. Thank you for joining us today, Jeff. For everyone listening, we'd like to thank you for connecting with MEC. We hope MEC Connect has made a positive difference in your day. And stay tuned for future episodes of MEC Connect. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.